a read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Indubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. On this episode of Indubitably, we will be exploring the question of whether or not we should tax religious institutions, churches, synagogues, mosques, etc. And to help us navigate this controversy, today we are joined by an interfaith activist who has been doing work in that community for about 10 years. And perhaps more importantly, he hopes to one day own a corgi and a French bulldog, which Kelly and I are willing to accept, even though we are both cat owners. Although to be fair, I am a dog person, but that's another conversation. Uh, He is also formerly the vice president of the Secular Student Alliance at the University of Laverne. Thank you for joining us today, Tahil Sharma. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Kelly. I'm not against cats, just for context. I just really like dogs, so I don't want to put that out there. Don't at me. (laughs) Fair enough. For our our army of Twitter followers. Mm Mm-hmm. And actually, I'm, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you, Tahil, because I think that you sort of provide an interesting perspective on this. If our listeners hadn't picked up on it through the intro there, you are both an interfaith activist and at the same time doing work within secular communities. So seemingly a little bit of a dichotomy there. Not at all, actually, at least not in my frame of understanding. I think. For people who might be new to interfaith word, the word interfaith kind of throws people off, off thinking that, oh, just because you work with religious communities doesn't mean you can't work with people who are secular humanists, atheists, agnostics, or even in the process of trying to figure out what life is. Um, The point at the end of the day is trying to engage as many stakeholders as possible to, you know, learn about each other, appreciate each other's differences, and actually try to make the world better. And like I said, I think that's a neat perspective to have, especially considering the conversation we're about to embark on today of whether or not we should be taxing churches, which obviously is going to include discussions of the separation of church and state. So having you along as somebody that straddles the divide between both of those things should be very useful. Look forward to it. To help us stay organized and on topic with this discussion, we have a few separate areas we're going to be looking at today. First, we'll be looking at what taxation would actually look like for these religious organizations. We'll also be discussing how churches and other religious organizations actually make their money, which does include taxation in some cases. We'll talk about what the point of taxation is and giving money to others in these contexts, both from the churches and I guess the societal implications thereof. And then what actually constitutes profit when we're looking at these religious organizations, as well as a discussion about the separation of church and state itself, which is, of course, very pertinent to this discussion. So why don't we start with that first question of what does taxation look like, just so we can conceptualize this discussion. If we're suggesting that potentially churches should be taxed, how could we go about doing that? Currently, churches avoid taxation, at least in the United States, and this this is from the research we've done, seems to be relatively standard across the world. Um, They avoid taxation on revenue, and they avoid taxation on property. Uh, One interesting thing to note here is that church employees, pastors, priests, rabbis, imams, they do pay individual income. 
As far as it could be researched, there does not seem to be any country that does apply a taxation scheme to any religious organizations that are officially recognized. There are probably some things that would be considered religions or religious organizations, but don't meet certain criteria and they may still be taxed. And I think that that was one of the bigger things for like the Church of Scientology was the day that they were recognized as being a religion and they got their tax exempt status. It was a real big deal if you watch the documentary, (laughs) which was Mm. uh, horrifying. But um, yeah, essentially there is no framework at at this time for how to tax a church because it's not really done anywhere. And I think that just as far as the organization of churches, part of the challenge is that they don't make, you know, quote unquote profits. Churches don't have owners and they don't have shareholders to benefit from money coming in. So it'd be difficult to identify what money should be taxed. They still have money. They still pay their employees. They still buy land. They don't have the same sort of structure as corporations do, but there is still an aspect of business and money involved, which is kind of unique to to the way that they organize themselves, but not totally dissimilar. There still is money involved and extra money that does not go to just cover their expenses, which could therefore be taxed. What kind of comes to mind first is, you know, understanding that not every religious institution is made equal. We cannot compare, you know, the small community church that I have across the street from me uh, to the Catholic church and all of its dioceses across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, the nature of how each, you know, place of worship functions solely depends on how they are able to connect to their stakeholders, which are their congregants. Um, So we have to really think about what that means in the larger context of the framework of taxation. Are we going to treat the local church with the same kind of tax style as we would the Diocese of Los Angeles, for example? And that's where we have to really also think about potentially a tax bracket system. That's an interesting point you make, too, just recognizing the vast disparity between the amount of money that's brought in by churches. And I think that it, it might be important to look at on aggregate, if we were to tax churches, how much money would we be talking about here? Overall, in the United States, religious organizations have about $125 billion that could be considered taxable profit. And it's a really rough measure because they don't have the same corporate structures like we're talking about. But ultimately, about $2.4 billion of that would be the actual tax revenue that the federal government would get from taxing churches if we're applying a really rough look at these numbers. That amounts to about 0.06% of federal revenue, which seems like a pretty insignificant number. Yeah, I don't think that taxing churches is going to be solving any major funding issues here. It's more of a principled issue. Although at the same time, in aggregate, if every potential 0.06% source were given forgiveness, that would add up pretty quickly and the government would either be losing or you know, potentially gaining if we were to tax them a, a, a significant amount of money. So I think that looking at this figure that churches bring in about $125 billion a year, at least in the United States, the next question that that probably leads us to is, all right, well, how do churches make this money? And I think that the answer that we're all familiar with or the stereotypical image that we have in our head is people putting dollars in the collection plate. And certainly donations is the number one source of revenue for churches. We also do think about things like 
with legacy funds and last wills and testament, people want to dedicate themselves. So they give a percentage of what they've left behind to the church or the congregation that they've gone to. So there are a lot of different ways that churches do make money, but the crux of it is that congregants themselves, the people that attend services are the ones that are going to give the largest portion. And I think that's really interesting. So, so on the topic of the donations and then also something like legacy funds, if I was the member of a church and passed away and left you know, a portion of my wealth, my massive wealth that I have to that church, I would be a little bit upset if then the church had to take that money and give it to the government, right? Like I'm passing away, it's my money or I'm donating it. That's where I want it to go. Leave it there. But that's how estate taxes work too. You wouldn't be able to give your individuals in your will the full amount of the money that you're going to leave them if it's over a certain amount. So similarly, why should anybody expect that a church would get the same amount? If I'm leaving $10 million to my cat or a child, they're probably only going to get like $6 million of it. Right. But your, your child is presumably using that for profit. But this would be more similar, I would say, to donating it not to your cat, but to an animal shelter with everybody's cats. And the government would, wouldn't come in and, and take it away from the animal shelter. But also, considering that taxes are supposed to be for the common good, should we really be that mad about it? That's a, that's a deeper question that we need to think about. The, the morality and the ethical nature of this, I think, uh, involves us in conversations about how separate is church and state really if the government is allowed to intervene in such transactions too. That, oh, if this citizen is deciding that they want to be able to support this faith community with the funding that they've left behind, do does the government have the authority to intervene in a faith community's support by being able to tax that money? Mm-hmm. That kind of does that does that bring up a question of the separation of church and state where a faith community and its congregants are having a certain transaction and the government says, aha, but where's my portion? Mm-hmm. Right. And I think we'll we'll definitely have a larger discussion on the separation of church and state later, but that individual relationship between the patron who's either giving the donation or listing a religious organization in their will does seem like a relationship that the government should mm, be careful about stepping into at the very least? Well, when we look outside of an American context, there actually is a pretty dramatic difference in terms of the relationship that the government has with both religious organizations and the individuals that participate in religion, or even in some cases don't participate in religion. This might be really surprising to Americans. We think that these separations, the relationship between the government, the individual, and a religious organization are pretty distinct. But in a lot of countries in Western Europe, there are uh, systems for mandatory church taxation, which is not taxing the churches, but rather taxing congregants who are affiliated with these churches to fund the churches through that tax structure. Yeah, this kind of blew my mind when we when we were talking about this before the episode. The, they're called church tax. Mm-hmm. And we had been trying to find examples of countries that tax churches. And when I read church tax, I was like, oh, here's the example. And then when we started reading it, it's actually countries that tax people 
sometimes 2% of their income, and then that income is distributed to the churches. Um, very, very counter to at least the um, culture that we've built up in the United States. And there are a few different ways that it's done. In some countries, it rests upon your actual affiliation with the church being an official congregant, and that's how you would get out of it is to renounce that. Other countries like Italy and Iceland, it's a default part of your income tax. You cannot choose not to pay it. And um, there are other countries where there's an opt-out system, but people still pay. And for example, in Sweden, over 30% of the people who are not members of any religious organization still select to pay the tax that goes to fund religious organizations. Do you think this is recognition of the church on a spiritual level? Or do you think this is recognition of the social work that churches do within the communities? Perhaps both. Yeah, I was going to say both also, because it kind of depends on the relationship that that church has to the community. For many communities of faith, recognizing community actually doesn't go out of the four walls of the temple or the church or the synagogue. It's actually community is just the congregation. So what they consider service would actually be feeding your own, taking care of your own, providing services to your own and the like, versus a lot of, you know, potentially social justice oriented organizations that actually put themselves out there to say, ah, we provide shelter to the homeless. Ah, we provide these services to people who have experienced domestic violence or human rights abuses. Oh, we go out there and work with other faith communities to work on environmentally sound projects. All of that really depends on the scope of what the faith community is doing exactly. Um, So a lot of them really actually dedicate money to put themselves out there as serving those outside of their walls. But a lot of communities actually don't do that also, because either one, they don't have the, um, the competency or the capacity to do so. And if they do, they choose not to. So again, this kind of takes us down a really interesting path of What is each community doing if they're going to be a part of this larger conversation? If they're already doing social good, do we exempt them if it passes a certain threshold? Or do we still hold them accountable because they need to be a part of the larger framework, which is putting things into the Federal Reserve and making sure all of the things that need to be paid for are also on their bill? I think that alongside of the sort of principled argument of secularism, as being one of the primary reasons for why we don't tax churches, this is the tangible reason or more practical reason for why we don't tax churches, right? What is the point of taxation? The point of taxation is redistribution of wealth to help individuals who are underserved by the system as it is. Uh, Things like what you just mentioned to Hill, the traditional ones that we think of would be soup kitchens or housing, you know, shelter, these sorts of programs, educational programs. And if that's the point of taxation, that's how the government would use the tax dollars. And if these religious institutions are already using the tax dollars in that way, it doesn't seem right or practical to tax them. And are all religious organizations doing that with the money that they would otherwise be paying as taxes? Most certainly not. Yeah, and this is, uh, you know, Tahili started our conversation by pointing out that churches are not homogenous. I mean, obviously, you have institutions of different religions that look very different. And then even within any particular religion, you have communities and churches of different sizes that cater in different scopes to the community around them. 
And even in churches that cater to the same scope of community, some might be more community-driven or or more action-driven, and some might be more interested in building a taller tower in the northwest corner in Winterfell, (laughs) whatever. With that, we already can kind of agree that it really wouldn't be a ton of money towards the government doing any of the work that it needs to do for these communities were it to tax the churches. But it is perceived by some as being a preferential treatment that they are getting the tax-exempt status altogether, which raises some questions about whether or not this is actually in line with the values set forth by the Constitution, at least in the United States. The IRS has a tax guide for churches and religious organizations that literally calls it favorable treatment in their introductory text. There's a couple, the relationship that churches have with their constituents and then how the government would interact with that, I think is interesting. So one question I have is if a church, like Tahil was mentioning, if, if, if there are particular churches who see their community as only the individuals within their church, right, within their four walls, and those are the people that they provide services for, is that more of a justification for a government to come in and tax them? Say, hey, we get that you want to help your people, that's fine, but you still exist inside of a city and a state and a country that has people that have needs as well, and we're going to tax you. If, if you don't want to help those people as well, we're going to step in and tax you because that's our job and we need the funds to do it. That's where we actually have to think about you know, historically the nature of the relationship between church and state. Because if we ignore the fact that Christianity in particular has played its role in how we see the development of this experiment we call the United States of America, we know for a fact that preferential treatment is offered to Christians because they make still make up a big population of what is the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can't ignore that at the end of the day. If we are going to take away this favorable treatment as the IRS describes it for churches, then would we also be doing it for other nonprofits that don't have a religious basis in them as well? At what point do we actually treat all of these organizations equally? If there are non-religious organizations that do charitable acts, should we tax them too? If we start taxing churches, but we are not taxing nonprofit organizations, then would my organization, which makes sweaters for stray kittens, be getting preferential treatment to all of the churches that now have to pay taxes? Would I be the favorite child of of the U.S. government? I I would say yes, actually. Um, And the reason why I say yes is because you provide a sole service. Churches are, uh, the, the work of a church is not necessarily only social good. It is creating community. It is providing a, a service to people. And this is where it gets difficult because if you are taxing people who are doing work of religion, again, where are you taking the conversation about where religion and state get involved? So it really depends on, I think, what services are being provided. Um, if you are just doing a social good, is that threshold? If you are doing more things, does that grant you the opportunity to be taxed? I think that kind of depends on how you're looking at um, the role of the community that you have and what the intention is in trying to have that community. Well, I think that, yeah, that's an interesting point too, because if we were to look at a nonprofit, Kelly's nonprofit that knits sweaters for cats, but not corgis, (laughs) nobody would really question that they still deserve some sort of tax exemption, right? Like a, a nonprofit organization has their mission. They fulfill their mission. Everybody's fine with that. But 
on the flip side, if you had a synagogue that said, hey, our job is to provide these services for our members, all of a sudden it feels dirty. It feels lesser. Like, hey, why are you only catering to your people and not everybody? But there isn't any nonprofit that helps everybody, right? Everybody, they, they, every nonprofit has their mission and they provide a, usually a specific service to a specific group of people. And I guess this, this does resemble that in a lot of ways. So on your example, though, of an organization that says we're only going to be providing these services for our members, generally speaking, my understanding is a lot of these organizations also have like a service expectation from their their congregants as well, that there is some sort of an agreement that it is a mutually beneficial arrangement. We'll provide religious teaching. You're also going to donate some of your time to helping paint the hallway or like whatever. So it's not just like I'm a member and I get all these like luxurious benefits of being a member. There's, there's a relationship there that I think is more nuanced than there might be with other nonprofit organizations because the stray kittens are not doing anything to help with the sweaters. Right. That's not true. They're providing you motivation. They're providing (laughs) you comfort. (laughs) Okay. Comfort when you get to cuddle with them afterwards. But I, I guess it is an interesting question, though, is does the more insulary nature of a church and its community make it more or less eligible for this tax-exempt status? Right. And are is the government the one that's supposed to dictate the role of the civic good that that community is supposed to provide for them to only then get tax exemption? So mm-hmm. should the government go into this church and say, hey, because you are not doing the specific service of giving permanent sustainable housing to the homeless, you therefore have to give the money to us. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we're talking about services that churches can provide under the context of tax exemption, though, it does make me wonder, why can't churches be taxed like any other organization? And like any other organization, they're able to write off the services that they provide. Why, Why can't we have a system like that? Because you know, throughout this discussion, we're saying, well, some churches do more, some churches do less, some churches provide this for anybody, whether they're in the congregation or not. Some churches are only for their own particular community. If we were to tax them and then put the onus on the church to prove that they are actually providing these services for which we give them tax-exempt status, would that be a better system than just giving them the exempt status by default and hoping that they use the money the right way? The long term, it would be helpful because it would also help them think about impact assessment, which is, I think, one of the biggest struggles in faith communities. Um, they talk about wanting to, you know, help the greater good, but a lot of it is usually talk. So what's a way for you to get incentivized to really measure that impact? And one of the ways might be to actually think about, hey, if we actually keep doing this good work, it actually helps us grow as a community because we're actually doing the service that we said we would do. And the government is helping us in the process as an incentive to say, as you keep doing it, you can grow and we will get less in your way. I'm just thinking about things I've learned recently about when you're at a grocery store at the checkout and they say, would you like to just round this up to the next dollar for, I don't know, St. Jude's hospital or whatever. And I've heard that they are doing that to make back whatever money they are donating to those organizations so that they can get the tax write-off. So I I wonder if we're looking at that with a church instead of my local grocery store, 
which is, you know, part of a corporate chain. Do the conversations about where the money is coming from and how the money is used become a little more disingenuous if there's an ulterior motive, I guess, kind of, because it can be used as a tax write-off too. Right now, if they're already getting no taxation on this money, then any money they do in a charitable capacity towards any cause is of their own volition. But as soon as you apply that sort of incentive, does that kind of skew everything? That's actually a fascinating point because then you kind of create a a write-off chain. You write it off from the person that donated to the church that donated to then the service that's provided. And then you're basically going in a circle of write-offs when you could just actually say like, okay, maybe the government shouldn't just get involved with this because everyone is going to then want to write off stuff. And then the point of doing the, the act, which is intrinsically good, just becomes an opportunity to make your taxes less at the end of the year. But, but I also wonder how much motivation matters. If you're somebody that is starving and you're homeless on the street, do you really care why the church is providing you shelter for the night? Or do you really care why they're providing you a meal? I just, I just want to eat, man. Like, I just want to get out of the rain. And if it's because they want to write off from the government, I'm fine with that. I think I worry about motivation because as soon as there is something that impedes the motivation, is some sort of inconvenience for the organization to actually carry out those acts or whatever, then what's the guarantee that they'll continue to provide housing for people? Mm. Yeah, I guess um, an organization as big as some of these churches would probably find a way to get in some tax loopholes if they were to be folded into the overall tax system. And then they don't have a reason to do anything. Yeah, because a a congregation of, you know, 50 people that might have a prime piece of uh, property somewhere can just suddenly afford to work with a local project to house, you know, another 50 people on the campus um, and provide them sustainable housing services, food and the like, because it just doesn't make economic sense. And it's also not practical for the staff and for the community at large. So you can't just expect them to do that if they don't have the capacity to do so. Mm-hmm. So it's it's pretty complicated, more so with churches than with a company or a, or a nonprofit organization to parse out what money is being given back to the community, what money is being reinvested into the church, and like what qualifies as profit. I think that that's a lot more muddled when it comes to a religious institution than some of the sectors of our society that are that are traditionally taxed. So to break this down a little bit, the majority of churches' money is used to maintain operations. So on average, churches spend 49% of revenue on personnel, 23% on facilities, 11% on missions, 10% on programs which is, I think, the conversation we were just having falls within that 10%, which seems small to me, and 6% on dues. The, the reason I say that it's more complicated than that is if we look at maybe the most infamous example of Joel Osteen, who is worth personally $100 million and reportedly drives a $325,000 Ferrari, um, and and he preaches at his Lakewood church in Houston, Texas, that includes 16,000 seats and was renovated for also $100 million. So in that scenario, 
I, that would be included in operating costs of the church, which would not be considered profit. But is that legitimate? Right. Or come on, like <laughs> there's got to be some money in there that could be going to the community that isn't. I think that they would probably argue that everything I'm sure that they did. I, I just kind of anticipate this rhetoric that everything that they did to improve the church was probably done to help advance their purpose, which is to become a very notable church. A lot of people outside of Houston know about this church, which is not common for a lot of churches. And being this really massive, impressive place draws a lot of attention to the message that this guy is preaching. He's on TV, man. He's on TV. Well, and one of the reasons that a lot of people know about this church, though, and the reason this example is so infamous is because of a controversy where they actually closed down and refused admission to Houston residents during Hurricane Harvey, where that area experienced mass flooding and thousands of people had to flee their homes. So you have this 16,000 seat stadium, essentially, that obviously has space to accommodate some of these people who are homeless for all intents and purposes because of Hurricane Harvey, and it's being shut off. So again, are these costs of building a facility like this justifiable and being written off or legitimizing tax exempt status if they're not being used for the sort of thing in the most obvious situation for the sort of thing that we talked about earlier in helping the community? Joel Osteen, of course, is one of the the prime examples of what happens when you have to basically get community pressure to use the privileges that you built yourself on to basically say, oops, I made a mistake. Okay, I'll open the doors rather than just doing it at the get go, which is showing, you know, moral ineptitude on one end, but also is it his responsibility? That kind of depends on how you look at the role of the faith community in a larger society. Um, not everyone comes to the, the consensus that they play the same role in every way. And I mean, Joel Osteen is like one of many examples. I thought the most famous example was Crefio Dollar, uh, the man who said that it was okay to evangelize on a private with a private jet around the world. Does he need that private jet to evangelize? No. But is the intent even in the first place to allow you exempt status from a government to raise funds for you to infringe on other people's freedom of and from religion? by wanting to convert them and you needing a plane of your own to go do that. I don't know, man. Have you ever sat in coach on an international flight? Might be necessary. Many times, many times. <laughs> and I've still had people sitting next to me tell me that I should become Christian. So surprise, surprise, you don't need a jet to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but you do need to be on a plane. <laughs> but and I, I think that's another fascinating question that delineates religious organizations from a corporation. And that's the question of, is proselytizing the attempt to convert people a legitimate means that should be tax exempt? Or is it just advertising? Amazon or Nike or Target certainly don't receive a tax break on commercials that they play. Every time I try to watch a YouTube video, I got to watch five minutes of commercials first. Is there something unique about a church spreading its word and, and trying to recruit members compared to just an ad that I watch on YouTube? I think it's completely different because the nature of advertising means that you being able to receive a product or a service remains a choice. It's not a it's it's not a dichotomy that makes you think about existential questions about your life. 
Like if I go to Amazon and I suddenly see that I want to get an air fryer, I can choose to buy it or I can choose to close the tab. Um, I don't ask myself 10 questions later about, oh my gosh, what if I did get it and it burns my house down? Or what if I don't get it and I have to host a party of 25 people? Proselytizing comes with a much larger intent. You are trying to enter a person's life in a way that says that your frame of understanding the world is wrong, ours is right, and we're trying to convince you out of yours. And that is a lot more work than Nike and others are willing to do, even if they have the money to be able to promote the brand and to be able to, you know, use every internet source and media source to be able to convince us that they have a good brand. So the convincing factor is, I think, the ultimate question. What are you convincing us to do? Is the, con- is the convincing us to get a product or a service and that's where it ends if we say yes or no? Or is the convincing process saying like, you're just living your life entirely wrong and if you don't change, then these are the consequences. Not to defend corporations too much, or I guess, I don't know, the, the, the cognitive pressure of either of these things, but I took a marketing class and I would say that a big component of advertising and marketing is to try to convince people that the way that they're currently doing things is wrong because you're trying to create lifelong customers. And I guess in a sense, getting someone to convert to your faith would be creating a lifelong customer. Yeah. I think of the less jaded Josh, I see this attempt at conversion, you know, coming from people who really believe that they're going to be improving somebody's life and afterlife and leading them on the path that they should be living on, in which case that is a community service. I could see that as being tax exempt. The more jaded Josh that shows up quite frequently on this podcast uh, would, would think that they see people as another potential revenue source, which is exactly the same as a corporation. It's one more person putting a dollar in the, in the plate every Sunday morning or Saturday morning or whatever morning your church happens to spread the plate around. So again, with all churches being different and even within churches, people having different motivations. I suppose it's really hard to tell. We also can't ignore the fact that like many corporations find the loopholes necessary in the tax code to not pay taxes. And that also at a much bigger level than arguably what faith communities have been bringing into this conversation. We can talk about singular companies like Amazon and GE, whose joint uh, evasion of taxes is way more than the number that we said could come out of faith communities. So the fact that we're not actually, you know, holding up the standard of how we tax corporations means how can we loop in faith communities into that conversation either if we can't hold the bigger ones accountable? Is this where I get to do my usual comment that we should tax Jeff Bezos? Because I try to get that in every episode. (laughs) Please, by all means, tax him. Tax Tax the rich. Tax Joel Olstein. We're going to sh- shift it up for this episode. Okay, both of them. It, yeah. It's not mutually exclusive. Let's tax everybody except me. I'm 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 fine. So this conversation we're having, though, I think is on the more pragmatic side of the topic, i.e., where does the money go? How does the money come in? What are they spending it on? And does that more resemble a nonprofit organization that deserves tax exempt status, or does that more resemble a corporation that obviously does get taxed? But I think there's an argument that even if at the end of the conversation so far, you believe that churches 
deserve to be taxed based on the factors we've been discussing, there's an argument that even despite that, because as we've alluded to, the separation of church and state exists in the majority of countries, that they still might be exempt from taxation. And in 96 countries around the world, there is a culture of secularism to at least some degree. And whether we want to say that the United States is constitutionally secular, uh, you know, prima facie or not, is debatable. But there are also other countries who are constitutionally secular, like France, Mexico, South Korea, and Turkey. So even if tangibly religious institutions are identical to other organizations that are taxed, does the constitutionally defined or at least nationally accepted separation of church and state protect them? Brought up a very interesting mix of countries there, there because three of them have very unique relationships to religion mm-hmm, that, mm-hmm. you know, play a very influential role. There's no doubt about it. Mexico is the Catholic church. South Korea is the plethora of Christian denominations. And Turkey is the Muslim community at large. France being, you know, as genuinely um, secular as possible also just has a completely different problem in that they want to actually double down on their secularism and be discriminatory towards faith communities, which Mm -hmm. is like the wrong side of the opposite of the coin. They they like slung shot around the sun a little too hard. And (laughs) it's, it's, it's actually pernicious the way that their secularism is enforced. That's for sure. But I think that's I think that's interesting because so for people that might not be aware, one of the policies um, that exists in France that we we're suggesting might be too secular would be a ban on religious headwear, uh, for example, and and targeting predominantly Muslim individuals. But I think that's pertinent to this discussion because there is the question that it, if you are going to separate church and state, does that separation l- more look like the state allowing the church to do whatever it wants, or more look like the state cracking down on the church to ensure that the church doesn't have the capacity to overstep its limits and affect other people within society. I would say it's not only the latter, but it's also in, I I think it's also infiltrating an individual's approach to their practice, um, which completely changes the conversation because it is the government saying, actually, we might be the secular government that says there's a freedom of religion, but the sheer fact that you're wanting to manifest it as an individual and we think it's unacceptable is actually the, the state going too far. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's complicated because in, in defense of churches and maintaining their tax-exempt status, spirituality is not like some of the other services that can be provided by nonprofits, right? It's not like education or meals, uh, housing people, distributing vaccines. How do you measure a church's contribution to the spiritual well-being of its members? And then based on that, how do you decide how much to tax or how little to tax them? You know, if we're talking about Hillsong or if we're talking about uh, Cal- uh, Calvary Chapel, if you're talking about a lot of the big churches, either non-denominational ones or ones that are associated with uh, the Catholic Church or with the Methodist Church or with the Episcopal Church, it kind of really depends. Do you tax the diocese? Do you tax the individual parishes? 
where does the control of the money come from and where does it end up going? The bigger question is what does the money end up getting used for in the government too? Probably the military. Good point. Ironically. <laughs> yeah. I think under the separation of church and state, there's a assumption that the government won't take action that will disallow people from practicing their faith. And some of these smaller parishes that you point out, there are some of them that perhaps would cease to exist were they to have to take on the financial obligation of paying taxes alongside of you know, their normal operating costs. And so if there was a church that had to shut down, if taxes kind of put them into the red, would that be the government taking away somebody's free exercise of religion? I'm not sure that's how the taxes would work, though. I mean, unless they were horribly mismanaging their money, it would probably be based upon whatever money they had left over after they met their initial obligations, like paying employees and making sure their facilities were set up. We don't have a tax structure for these things to actually, you know, look at a real world example, but I can't imagine that a government would say, okay, we're going to start taxing religious organizations. We're not going to pay any mind to what you actually do day to day and how much it costs you to do those things day to day. We're just going to tax you a flat 30% of all of the donations that you take in. I don't think that they would do that. But the big one that I'm thinking of here is the property tax. So like we've said, one of the big expenditures for these religious institutions is facilities. So say they've taken and they've used up the vast majority of their money, and a big portion of that was on buying a large swath of land so that they could build a large building, so they could have 10,000 people attending their sermons. And they say, this is functionally necessary for the operation of our church, which right now we say, okay, so you're not going to have to pay taxes on that. But under a new system where you did have to pay property taxes, some of these buildings would come, like would have some pretty hefty taxes, right? And how do you, how do you measure? We've given our 10,000 members 31% Jesus. And based on that, we, we can validate the building of this $5 million facility that to me is the is the challenge here how do you measure these things and then assign an appropriate tax level to them yeah and i mean at the end of the day we go back to that earlier question of what is the intent of the community if they are called to you know pray to jesus and that is the intent of why they created the community and they're expanding we can't hold them on hold their feet to the fire and say well you didn't do these other things so therefore we're going to tax you Mm. They, 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 the service and the mission and the purpose was we're creating a large community that is following Christ to have them worship whenever they would like. And this is the space for them. They've committed, they've completed that obligation. And by expanding it to the level of having a bigger membership and to retain that membership, they need to grow their facilities. They need to build a new building. They need to provide those services for that community. Is it up to them to be able to then say, aha, now we have to be mindful of creating new projects and ideas and impact assessment and all of the list of things that we mentioned before that is now tagged on that could actually lead to the community not being able to expand? Because for many faith communities, one of their main intentions is retention and expansion of their community and not much outside of them. I just think property taxes are kind of stupid, too. (laughs) That's just because you just bought a place. Well, I mean, I like I bought it once. Now I have to like keep paying tax on it forever. 
Mm-hmm. That's that's ridiculous. One of the relationships that, at least in the United States, is crucial to a church being able to have its tax-exempt status is that it has to stay out of politics. It cannot actively campaign for a candidate and things like that. So the the tax-exempt status is a way to reinforce that, that division. But that can also be seen as a way that it limits the speech of the churches. The free exercise thereof is what if it's very crucial to their religious uh, integrity that they're able to advocate for one candidate over another? And then they have to make the decision about whether or not they're going to have their political ad- advocacy as a religious organization, or they're going to keep their tax exempt status. So this kind of puts these organizations into a double bind that I'm not sure that there's a way to resolve either way with how we currently structure things. And this being one of the justifications for their tax-exempt status, I think that you would be hard-pressed to suggest that churches do not get involved in politics in the United States. No. I um, I had a coworker who told me once when um, in the state of Oregon, when gay marriage was on the ballot, in her actual like Sunday service, they were instructed to get up and pray towards the state capitol that it would not pass. <laughs> that we would not not have legal gay marriage in the state of Oregon. I think that's an involvement in politics that that uh, it might be inappropriate. Really, to that point, actually, that's where's the line? Where do we say that a, a, a church is becoming politically engaged or any faith institution? Hmm. If they say something like Black Lives Matter, have they become political suddenly because they're engaging in a larger discourse? Technically, no, because saying Black Lives Matter is more of a social statement. It is a statement that is bringing dignity to people, but people might interpret it as being political because of the nature of how we engage in discourse. What is the line of what we say is political and not political? And when we're talking about specifically endorsing candidates or pieces of legislation, that's where the Johnson Amendment comes in and says like, ah, you're a faith community, you can't do that, which is a privilege lost technically in comparison to the privilege gained of being tax exempt. Faith communities have also been able to create 501c4s, which allow you to be able to have um, endorsing power. You're also able to create political action committees that are faith-based. Yeah, and I would challenge you to find any candidate that hasn't made a very big and dramatic showing at whatever their particular church is. It's almost a a mandatory thing to get elected in the United States in at least 90% of districts and certainly federally um, to be a member of a church, to show that you are a God-fearing man or woman who is going to uphold, you know, the supposedly secular, but uphold the Christian values of the country. Beyond that, though, I think, and we, we mentioned this a bit earlier, there is an interesting argument to be made that while the obvious interpretation of separating church and state would suggest that the state would not tax the church, it would leave the church alone, there are some people that would suggest that a separation of church and state would actually do the opposite. So the First Amendment in the Constitution reads, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And I think that three central concepts have been derived from the First Amendment, which have become America's doctrine for church and state separation. One is that there will be no coercion 
in religious matters. Two, that there will be no expectation to support a religion against one's will. And three, that religious liberty encompasses all religions. And under number two, support for a religion that would include financial support must be given voluntarily. So for me, the question is, does giving churches tax breaks in a way force those of us who do not believe in them to support them financially? I guess it depends on if you consider that to be like a subsidy, I guess. Like the fact that they're not paying taxes and we all are means that we're carrying some of the weight of the social burden of funding the country. If if you believe that. I don't uh, know that I believe that. Um, alternatively, though, all of the money that is being donated by congregants is money that is taxed if they are U.S. citizens. Congregants are taxpaying people, and they are then contributing to their community. So is that therefore giving them a different exemption from other people who might be donating somewhere else? If someone is donating to the Secular Student Alliance versus the Episcopal Church, are both of those money still not taxed if the person is still working? And we've already made a point that even people working for these institutions also pay taxes as it is. So how much of this exemption are we really thinking makes sense? And what what does that subsidy actually look like that you think you might be supporting? Right. But if, like we talked about earlier, there's this insular relationship between community members and the churches or religious institutions that they attend, they're paying money to their church and in return receiving benefits from that church. And they're getting a tax break on that money that they're donating while at the same time, they're presumably, even though they're in this insular community, they're still benefiting from government services, whether it's roads or electricity or social services. So is this them double dipping? In one hand, they have their insular community that they're able to keep money within and benefit from that. And at the same time, they're able to benefit from the structures that we, we as a member of a non religious organization um, are funding? That goes into a whole other conversation about, do we provide social services for people who don't quote need them? And do you means test everything? And that's a, that's a whole other discussion, but it's like there was a controversy just last year where somebody was up in arms that every student at a public school was eligible for a free lunch, even the kids who didn't need it. And what kind of message was that sending about like, I don't know, socialism. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we can restrict that. I don't know that if people are receiving services from a religious organization that they donate to, that that should have any bearing on their relationship to the social services they might also get from the state. Mm. Yeah, those aren't the same thing because, yeah, I might be giving taxes now because I just recently moved and I moved to another county. I don't think I'm going through the key through 12 system again here. So just because I still donate my taxes to the school system doesn't mean I need to necessarily immediately reap the benefits. That's interesting. So I guess I guess the the last question I have here on the side that would suggest that the separation of church and state doesn't include tax exemption is can we draw a straight line between the actual amendment Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. But can we draw a line from that to 
religious institutions shouldn't be taxed? I guess because they're not taxing them all equally, they're not respecting a specific establishment of religion. So that doesn't seem to run in conflict with the amendment. Well, not necessarily is it in conflict with the amendment, but does the amendment justify, right? Like, is there a default expectation that churches should not be taxed or is there justification stemming from this amendment? And if the justification stems from this amendment, as we have sort of at least implied throughout the episode, like because the United States has this constitutionally enforced secularism, therefore they have tax exempt status. Where's the line between those two things? I think the line is established on the interpretation of prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Does that apply to the individual or does that apply to a community or a congregation? That's a bigger question. In much of how we understand the ideas of freedoms, those are applied to individuals. In a country like the United States, where even corporations can be considered individual persons, does that mean that we allot that same rite of passage to faith institutions? And that is where I think people might be able to draw a line where we actually say, ah, because we consider these institutions people technically, mm. we cannot tax them the same way um, because it'll, in, it'll encroach on, infringe on the First Amendment. But that solely depends on the interpretation of those last few words. Mm. I think that's a, that's a really interesting parallel there. I think one of the questions you're asking, though, is about if there's a default assumption that churches shouldn't be taxed. I would say that there is that does not stem from the First Amendment. I think that's a global understanding and that we can't find any examples of countries that do tax religious organizations. This seems to be something that collectively all of the the, uh, contemporary governments and people agree is best practices is to not interfere with these organizations at that degree. Well, and this would start a whole nother episode. So I'm just going to throw it out here. Uh, People can think about it, but there is not a, there are very few countries on the planet that were not founded in some sort of religious tradition. But as time moves on, you know, people like the global population as a whole seems to be trending less and less religious. So is that sort of understanding that you're talking about, Kelly, just rooted in an appeal to tradition. And what we're talking about today, is it something that could be questioned and adjusted as a population, you know, shifts? I don't know. I guess that's for the world to decide. Certainly as they make that decision, they're going to have to take into consideration all of the things we talked about, principled arguments of secularism, practical benefits, relationships between churches, their congregation, communities at large, and governments. All of that being said, at the end of this, Tahil, what do you think? Should churches maintain tax-exempt status or not? Or what would that look like in your world? Um, In my world, if a faith community is serving the greater good and actually benefiting communities, um, I do not think they should be uh, taxed in any way. I follow this idea that if they follow the certain threshold of starting to look more like a corporation in the way that they function and in the way that they are self-serving, then I think they should be taxed. I think I agree with that. I feel like 
there's a very clear case for the Joel Osteens of the world to be taxed. Nobody needs that fancy of a, a church or a car or annual income. But I would um, say that for anybody religious or otherwise, that that's just too much money for one person. You know, I'm basically a socialist. I do think (laughs) we have to look at the scale of of the types of services, the types of institutions. There are some very modest, very humble religious groups, and they don't do that sort of ostentatious stuff. And I don't think it would be appropriate to tax them. I probably don't have a lot of similar ideologies as a lot of them. And they might even do things that I would consider pernicious in the community. I use that word twice today. I'm I'm on a roll with using the word pernicious. But they, they might do things that actively undermine my rights as a person. But I don't see any tangible good from taxing them as a means to, I don't know, get my revenge on them for disagreeing with me. I think that there's probably a better way to engage with their ideas and the taxation wouldn't serve a purpose. And I just don't, I don't, I don't see that there's an overwhelming need as a country that we need that money from those organizations at the risk of limiting their ability to exist as organizations that carries a lot of potential unintended consequences as well. So overall, Joel Osteen tax, most everybody else, probably not. (laughs) <laughs> I think I agree with both of you that there are some examples that uh, obviously I would say should be taxed and some examples that obviously shouldn't. I think for me, the difference is that I think that we can more effectively do that when we start from a default position of taxing churches and then make them prove to us that they deserve exemptions through actual services that they are providing to people. and. For smaller churches in what would be obviously a progressive system, it would be relatively easy, I think, for them to show that they are providing those services and therefore are worthy of tax exemption. And for larger institutions, it would be difficult and we would probably be making uh, some money off of them. And like we said in the episode, we're not going to be making a a ton. We're not going to be solving world hunger based on this tax, but, you know, the federal government taxing me doesn't solve anything. I don't make that much. But <laughs> again, like I mentioned earlier, um, on a principled level, uh, just because you know, you're not going to be curing homelessness doesn't mean that you don't deserve to be taxed if you deserve to be taxed. So um, I, I think there's a reasonable way to establish a progressive system that allows for churches that are doing the right thing to not pay taxes, but ensures that we are able to prevent the abuses that I think are quite evidently happening in the status quo. Well, as usual, we'd love to hear what everybody else has to say on on this subject. And let us know if you agree that maybe some churches should be taxed and some others maybe not, or if you think that one way or the other absolutely is the answer to this question. And the way that you can let us know about that is you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at IndubitablyPod. And also you can now read us on Spotify in addition to Apple Podcasts. So give us that five stars. We're big fans of getting five stars. Awesome. Well, thank you again to Heal. Thank you, Kelly. I don't oh, say it very often. It, oh, but I well, appreciate you're, you're you. welcome. Okay. <laughs> That's great. Thank you. And uh, thanks to all of our listeners. And until next time, take care. Bye-bye. Bye.